Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the 239th edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. In Nashville, Tennessee, I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And a drag route across the Harpeth River from me here in the Music City, it's our own offensive coordinator, the coach, Corey Burton. Well, if EA Sports ever becomes our sponsor, hint, hint, EA if you're listening, um, I was dropping some dimes in the uh, face of the franchise mode on the new Madden, so... uh, the drag route is, is my favorite route to throw, especially off of a play-action boot fake. So we're good to go, man. Um, episode 239, it was a great week. I'm still kind of hungover from uh, Thanksgiving, not because I drank a lot, but because the turkey is that good. The turkey and stuffing was that good. Oh, well, you, you know what they say. If it's in the game, it's in the game. It's in the game. But we can't get started without the third amigo in the second city, a man whose team, using the transitive property of Purdue wins and losses, is worse than Rutgers. It's our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and Counting, Josh Cook. What's up? What's up? Happy uh, belated Thanksgiving, everybody. Hi. Good to see you. Coach, how was your stuffing? The stuffing was outstanding. Mushrooms? Uh, No mushrooms, but it had chestnuts in it. Ooh. Bacon? I think so. Ooh. Pretty all sure. right. All right. Well, uh, now that we are into December, our chestnuts can be roasting over an open fire. <laughs> and while said chestnuts are roasting, if you want to put in uh, a little action on some of these upcoming football games, you can check out our sponsor, our friends over at Bet Online. The football season is in full swing. In fact, we're about to get to conference title games here in a couple weeks. Uh, all, uh, you know, all, all COVID precautions uh, aside. So while you may not be at the games, and definitely probably won't be at those college championship games, you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. So no matter who your team is, head on over to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag to sign up today. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Gents, week 13 is in the books. We had some weird, wacky, and wild games all over the country, but I think the most action came from the SEC this past week. We are going to start down there with some of the big rivalry games. Let's start with the Iron Bowl. Every year, obviously, the Iron Bowl is one of the biggest games of the year. This season was no different, but as expected, Alabama just absolutely put it to Auburn, winning 42-13. to And honestly, it wasn't even that close. Uh, Mac Jones, you know, he didn't even have to work to get 300 yards passing, only 26 passing attempts. Uh, Coach, my question to you, though, Devonta Smith, how does he stack up with the great Alabama receivers we've seen over the past you know, 10, 12 years during Nick Saban's tenure. Because, again, he went off in this one, 171 yards and two touchdowns. He goes off every game, man. Um, And he now has the most receiving touchdowns in SEC history. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to say that he may be the best. That's I mean, that's I mean, I don't know, uh, because the, the production speaks for itself. I mean, you know, obviously you have Julio Jones in there. You have Amari Cooper. Uh, in the lineage, you have Jerry Judy, uh, Henry Ruggs. Uh, who else am I leaving out here? Um, uh, you've got um, Julio Jones, Jerry yeah, Judy, Calvin Ridley. Ruggs, Ridley, Smith. I mean, yeah. Waddle. Uh, I mean, he's been hurt this year, but he's still I mean, an outstanding outside of receiver. Julio, outside of Julio, who's just a physical freak, uh, they didn't pass the ball as much. I think if Julio played now, um, he would shatter that record. But um, outside of Julio, I, I, I mean, I would venture to say Devontae Smith might be the best of that bunch outside of Julio. Yeah, he is a really, really special player. Uh, we Again, Josh saw Bo Nix struggle against upper echelon competition. Uh, two picks, no touchdowns. 
and he just you know he, he didn't he never seemed in sync all day he wasn't really able to get it out to any of those big plays guys whether it was anthony schwartz or seth williams uh josh though is this the end for did this sort of put the nail in the coffin for uh gus malzahn uh on the planes at auburn oh man that's like the million dollar question because you know gus malzahn saved his job a few times he was i believe three and four entering the game against alabama three and five is still a pretty good record against your arch rival when your arch rival and every time you play that game is a top four team so i mean he has that going for him i think though the problem is the final score 42 13 if you are the Auburn administration. You're looking for a reason to get rid of him. This was a spanking. And really, it could have been a lot worse. Auburn actually played a pretty good first quarter defensively, holding them to just seven points. But, Matt, you, you were dead on about Bo Nix. I mean, just didn't get it done. I mean, two interceptions, like you mentioned. And he was only sacked four times, which, okay, that's a fair amount, but... It's against the Alabama defense. So he had some protection in that game. He still racked up over 200 passing yards against a good defense. His running game wasn't horrible. Their average wasn't very good, but they were committed to the run and racked up 120 yards, which is what I always feel like teams need to do against Alabama. I hate when teams get stuffed like five times in the first quarter, and then they go, all right, that's it. We're going to pass it 60 times. (laughs) Uh, they they at least remained committed to it and ran the ball 42 times. So I think the problem was the Auburn defense just knew that they were going to give up points. They tried their best. Like I said, they played a good first quarter. But Bo Nix knew he needed to be flawless. Bo Nix needed to have the day that Mac Jones had for Auburn to stand a chance. And that was a lot of pressure on him. He didn't He didn't get it done. And... Gus Malzahn didn't really get it done either. But to go back to your original question, I I just have stopped trying to guess what this Auburn team's going to do with Gus Malzahn. Yeah, and I think that Bo Nix as a quarterback, you know, he's he's been, I don't want to say he's been Jekyll and Hyde coach, but he's been kind of all over the map uh, from game to game sometimes. Do you think that is a product, product of his talent, or is that more indicative of, of the talent level and skill level around him at Auburn and the competition that they have to face week in, week out. Because, you know, our friend Mike Farrell over at Rivals actually posted something really interesting the other day asking, you know, if if you swap Bo Nix and Mac Jones, if Bo Nix is the Alabama quarterback, is he the one having the Heisman contending season this, this year? Probably, uh, probably not. I don't know. He he feels pressure that's not there. Uh, there's some things that he does that uh, it doesn't matter who's around him or what's around him. Um, because I, I mean, I think Seth Williams, although not quite as good, but I, I think he's up there in that tier with uh, Devonte Smith. Now Devonte Smith sits in the top of that tier by himself, uh, but I think he's up there with him, and and so he's got that, and he's that, got that that, that that best receiver in the SEC tier. Yeah, I mean he's got and he's got some pure speed with Schwartz and Stove uh, that he can also take advantage of. So I mean he's got weapons, so there's no reason they should be playing that poorly. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think honestly, it's I think a lot of it's on him. Uh, you know, I think he's just up and down, Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, I think sometimes the game just gets too big for him. He, like I said, he bails on on the pocket way too soon. A lot of times he's. He can be inaccurate with the ball a lot, uh, but when he's on, he's on. When he's in rhythm, I mean, there, there's you know, he can he can play like like those like Trask and Jones and you know uh, Matt Corral and, and and those those type quarterbacks. But then he can also come down to the Jared Garantano level too, and just totally mishandle the ball, throw picks, make bad decisions, hang on to it, take unnecessary sacks, things like that. So. Uh, to answer your question, I don't know if that answered your question at all, but um, you know he, he's he's all over the map, honestly, and it's hard to get a read on him. Yeah, it, it, I, it, I will it, say this: if you look in terms of the Auburn um, 
situation with their coaches. Um, with Gus Malzahn's tenure now in its seventh year, obviously you can't compare it to Gene Chizik. That was the most insane thing. But the coach before Gene Chizik, Tommy Topperville. Tommy. Yeah. Uh, that's Senator Tommy Tupperville to use. Sen- Senator Tupperville. Okay, when he can name all three branches of the government, then I will. <laughs> um, but if you look at it, uh, Tupperville, when he stepped aside, it was kind of weird. It was like a buyout, resignation, fired, not continued contract. It's kind of a weird situation how he left, but ultimately they parted ways. Uh, when that came down, he had a .68 winning percentage, a 6.8 winning percentage. Uh, Gus Malzahn slipped below that. He's now down to a, a 66 winning percentage. You look at their last few seasons. Tupperville's last season was a 5-7 and seven nightmare, but before that, 20 wins. This year, it's not bad. It's 5-3, and three, certainly better than Tupperville's. But the two preceding years... Only 17 wins. So there's the downward trajectory, very similar to what Tuberville did. Um, and Auburn pulled the trigger then. So, like I said, if if they want him gone, the blowout was the perfect excuse. If they still like what they see, if they still trust what he's doing, you know, they extended him when he was thinking about going to that Arkansas gig. If they like it, then you have the argument of, Hey, he's won the Arbor. He's won the Iron Bowl three times. So th- that's why it's impossible to predict what the Tigers do. Yeah, it really is. Well, uh, Coach a minute ago mentioned Matt Coral, and he was involved in what was probably the best game of the weekend in the SEC, and that was the Egg Bowl. The Egg Bowl's always a lot of fun. Mississippi, Mississippi State. Uh, this year was no different. Not as high scoring, I think, as a lot of people may have anticipated. Ole Miss, I know, I took Ole, the over. I know. Ole Miss only won uh, 31-24. to Still, though, you mentioned Matt Coral, coach. He had 385 yards and two scores, no picks. Looked really good. On the other side of the field, though, Will Rogers, uh, not the former uh, singing cowboy Will Rogers, but the uh, freshman quarterback for the Bulldogs, 440 yards, three touchdowns, and no picks. Took him 61 attempts to get there. We saw a lot of offense, but not as many points as we would have expected, despite not having a ton of turnovers. Coach, what made it so that Ole Miss was eventually able to pull this one out at home? They got stops when they needed to. Um, their bend, don't break defense just kind of made necessary stops when, when they had to and, and opportune times and uh, took advantage of some of the momentum and and, and got points and, and took momentum late in the game. So uh, they just did. I mean, they made more plays honestly uh, down the stretch and and they they controlled the game in the second half. And I think that was the biggest key. Josh, you hundred percent agree. Part, yeah. part, pardon, Matt. I was gonna say, did you catch any of this one? I caught bits and pieces of it, but I hundred percent agree with Coach. I was looking at the stats. And I was trying to figure out the edge, and I'm like, well. You know, 479 to 550, okay. Well, you know that Ole Miss is really good offensively, so that's not a surprise. Turnover, okay, one nothing. Time of possession, State actually won. Penalties, Ole Miss was terrible. They had a really bad day with penalties. So I was like, what, what exactly best explains this game? And it's rare that we go there, but Ole Miss forced six punts. Versus just three. So it just simply came down to that. Bending but not breaking. Forcing punts. And that's how Ole Miss did it. And I guess the thing that I'm most excited about are these two quarterbacks and their futures. Um, talked about Will Rogers before. I cannot believe he's just a freshman. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. I, the future of the quarterback position in the SEC is, is, is going to be outstanding. I mean, I always have... forget that Coral's only a sophomore because know. you know he spent a year at USC. He transferred around a little bit. Man, I mean, if he plays two more years in the SEC, I mean, he could be setting some serious records by the end because I mean, he just throws it and throws it and throws it, and he's got arm talent. You know that hey, is gonna... up there with anybody else in the conference. I'm going to not... go out on. A, I'm going to go out on limb, you guys. Remember when I said that Jerkovic might be the best 
BC college or BC quarterback since Flutie. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go out on a big limb. I think Will Rogers might be the best Mississippi State quarterback since Dak Prescott. <laughs> <laughs> Some limb there. I think gonna say, I think I think gonna say uh, Coral's the best Ole Miss quarterback since uh, since Archie, Archie Manning. Manning. Well, or at least Eli. <laughs> I thought you were gonna go with Fitzgerald for. Uh... <laughs> For Mississippi State. <laughs> Nick, Nick Fitzgerald. <laughs> well, which version of Fitzgerald? The Mississippi State version the Auburn version? Um, <laughs> yes. That's Nick Marshall. Oh, wrong. Yes, sorry. Wrong Wrong quarterback. Wrong dual threat quarterbacking Nick. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Get it right, dude. God. Plus, Nick, Nick Marshall came into Georgia as a, as a corner. <laughs> <laughs> per his request. He, he actually wanted to be a corner, so... Well, he he threw like he was a corner. Um, he did. Well, speaking of Georgia, Coach, uh, your dogs did not need much of their former five-star quarterback, JT Daniels, to absolutely run roughshod over the University of South Carolina, the must-champless uh, University <laughs> of South Carolina Gamecocks. Coach, we did not expect them to absolutely blow south carolina out of the water but that is exactly what they did with the two-headed monster that they have at running back in james cook and samir white well speaking of the running game don't count out dewan edwards and kenny mcintosh no i mean all those guys had more than 75 yards yeah i mean they they contributed as well so uh i i would say uh the the running back position is is it's safe to say it's going to be pretty good at georgia um but honestly you know the, the old adage of um, if the defense is going to give it to you, take it. Um, there were several long runs broken uh, that easily could have extended drives if, if they weren't broken for long runs uh, that could have involved our passing game. So we probably, because I think we had six explosive runs, uh, all six of those could have probably turned into, I don't know, uh, like three more plays at least uh, each. And you could have sprinkled some more passes in there. So you probably could have went from 16 attempts to about 25 attempts just based on those six runs uh, that were. So, you know, people get stuck on the, the the lack of passing and things like that. But, I mean, honestly, we didn't have to pass. And it was one of those situations where, hey, we're going to take what the defense gives us. Uh, we're going to just run rough shot over a team that's completely decimated. On, uh, on on the defensive line and, and just took just took full advantage of that and, and it was uh, it was good to see that after rushing for only eight yards against Mississippi State to come out and just explode uh, against uh, against South Carolina was great uh, but you know those sixteen those those ten out of uh, sixteen passes completed for J T Daniels uh, threw some dimes man uh, I was impressed with Arian Smith got behind the defense on a post route dude it's fast. Hmm. Uh, you know, JT dropped a dime on that. Second drive, um, there was a sideline ball. It was like third and long. Uh, there was a back shoulder back shoulder throw to George Pickens. Uh, that was an absolute dime. Uh, I, I think there's not a whole lot of quarterbacks that can make that throw. There was another one. Uh, Trey McKitty on the first series uh, had two, two big catches, one for a touchdown. Uh, down there in the red zone, I'm glad they gave it to him on on the review because he earned it with his contributions on that series. But I mean, honestly, James Cook had, uh, you know, was ripping off some nice runs. Amir White was ripping off some nice runs. Dywan Edwards on that last drive ripped off like ten straight runs um, to get him down to where they just took a knee. And I was kind of hoping they'd finish that off, but um, Bobo and Kirby Smart are good friends, so. But I mean, a lot of lot of positive things in, in the offense, and, and I'm glad we're we're finding a run game so that we can complement it with our pass game. And I think against an opponent that's not so depleted like South Carolina was, I I think you probably would have seen like a, a 30 pass attempt to a like a 25 to 30 carry uh, type uh, type rushing effort. Uh, you know, you probably would have seen a little bit more balance had the team not been so depleted. But the running game was just working too well in that scenario so that's kind of what happened there i'm not gonna lie guys i i think this south carolina team uh, they're heading the wrong direction i think they're quitting on mike bobo 
I mean, they've known him for like six months, so I'm not like that surprised. <laughs> I think they just never came back from uh, from what's his name, Will Muschamp. <laughs> he's been gone for two weeks, and he's already yeah. What's his name? Yeah, old good, good old what's his name? Yeah, well, who's that guy? <laughs> All right. Um. Well, guys, the last game I want to talk about and, and lead into a bigger discussion is the. Uh, curb stomping that Mizzou put on Vanderbilt this weekend. Now, typically, we wouldn't talk about Mizzou Vandy because, well, let's face it, when you're looking at two teams with a combined record of 4-11, and 11, eh, doesn't really matter. But this game mattered for two reasons. A, Sarah Fuller the uh, became the first woman to kick in a Power 5 game for Vanderbilt when she... Did the second half kickoff for the Commodores, uh, putting a squib kick uh, down on the Missouri about 33-yard line, right where they wanted her to do it. Amazing moment for all involved. The following day, Derek Mason was relieved of his duties as Vanderbilt coach. And And I was surprised by that, too. I mean, you know, Vanderbilt, great liberal arts school, he plays... He plays one woman and he gets fired. It was it was unbelievable. <laughs> I've never seen anything like this before. You don't think it has anything to do with the fact that they have this huge buildup about having uh, this female kicker come in and they can't even get within field goal range against Mizzou? Well, I mean, that might play a part of it. Uh, the fact oh, that they are 3-17 and might- 17 over the past uh, two years in the SEC. I think that's a contributing or factor. Three and seventeen. Actually, I think that's over the last three years. The LCC. Yeah, um, I think that might. That might. Yeah. That's a contributing factor. Yeah. I just think that's. That a, sorry, sorry. Three and seventeen through. is our overall record in the past two years. Three and nine, <laughs> then zero and eight this year. Well, I think the fact that they lost to UNLV at home by double digit digits last year is that to me it was just like the ultimate low. This might even be lower. Couple other facts <laughs> that I want to just throw in there on this one. Vanderbilt, apparently, apparently Ms. Fuller, uh, who, mind you, is the only SEC champion on that team, (laughs) came in and gave a speech at halftime because she was upset that the guys on the sideline weren't really into it. (laughs) To be fair, if I was playing for Vanderbilt, I'm not sure how into it I would be either. They are the team who has been most decimated by COVID and opt-outs this season. They've had something like 28, I think, opt-outs in transfers since the beginning of the year, which definitely leads the nation. And it is just, it's not good. Uh, the team on, on against Mizzou, who... Mind you, again, this is Missouri. We're talking. This is not Alabama. This is Missouri. They had 185 yards of total offense. It was pathetic. It was an absolute dumpster fires, dumpster fire. They made Connor Bazelak look like Drew Lock. Drew Lock. They made Larry Roundtree look like Jim Brown. It was absurd how bad they were. They were, I mean, just the overall, you know, if you look at the team, if you look at the game sets, I mean, they were outgained 603 to 185. And people are going to say, oh, well, they only had, you know, they didn't, they were supposed to be playing Tennessee. They didn't find out they were playing Missouri until Tuesday or whatever. Well, guess what? Missouri didn't find out they were playing Vanderbilt until Tuesday. So don't give me all that mumbo jumbo. I'm not here for it. Is it mumbo number five? Um, Well, it is uh, for Coach Derek Mason. It is uh, mumbo number. It doesn't matter. See you later. You're gone now. So, Coach, I know you watched actually a fair bit of this game. I mean... Mason, uh, yeah. and, and, and you're, you're tapped into some Vanderbilt sources as well. Um, it was just, it was a it was a weekend of triumph for Sarah Fuller and 
failure for the entire rest of the program. Personally, I wrote on Twitter that this game was an embarrassment for everyone involved on the Vanderbilt team who wasn't named Sarah Fuller. It really was. And, and honestly, I, I think Sarah Fuller was put into a unfair position because I think the university kind of used her to uh, to bring them some publicity that they feel like they needed. I mean, I mean, why, why, I, I don't understand why Vanderbilt feels like they have to do that because, I mean, you're in the SEC. It's not like you have to pull these weird, weird publicity stunts and, and weird gimmicks that, you know, and if she if she truly was the best option, then you know everything I'm saying is obviously I, I I don't agree with that. You know, if she's the best option, she's the best option. That's fine. Um, but I think she was the best option because honestly, coming into the game, Vanderbilt's kicking game ranked 95th out of 96th out of 99, 99 qualifying teams in terms of field goal percentage. They were making less than 43% of their kicks coming into the game. So but, I actually truly believe she was the best field goal kicking option. But let me ask you this too. Uh, I mean, I, I guess the kickoff was just to get her in the game. Yes, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Because they probably could have gone with the punter uh, in that scenario if 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 uh, if they needed to. But you know, I, you know, it just it just reeked of a publicity stunt. But Vanderbilt was so bad that we don't know how good she would have been kicking field goals because they never got close enough to try one. And, no, apparently, and, and apparently, she's going to be the kicker against Georgia this coming weekend. I guess. Probably still won't find out. This <laughs> uh, it's getting it's going from bad to worse uh, for this Vanderbilt team. They have, uh, regardless, I, I've heard reports that they have, you know, there's a full blown mutiny going on uh, within the uh, within the clubhouse, and so that's that's never a good thing. Um, and and though, you know, she gave the halftime speech. That's probably, you know, that probably also reeks of publicity stunt. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's one of those things where you look at like uh, it smells like a rat, looks like a rat, maybe it is a rat. I don't know. Um, but for Sarah Fuller, if she goes in, kicks a field goal this weekend, then we will know. Um, if she, I mean, if she she knocks it through and and uh, kicks the crap out of it, like uh, like like we think she can, uh, then you know this whole publicity stunt stuff can be put to bed. Um, and say, okay, well, maybe she can't kick football. So um, hopefully that'll happen for her sake. Um, you know, as far as the Vandy's sake, I don't really care. Um, but as long as for her sake, because, I mean, she she didn't ask for any of this. So um, No, she didn't. She did not she, ask for any of this, Josh. And, you know, you are, you are much more of an outsider to Vanderbilt than either Coach or I am. So I'm curious to see and to hear what your take on this whole situation is. Uh, my take was twofold. Um, I took it as a utterly desperate program and a coach whose seat was quite possibly the hottest in the country, especially after Will Muschamp got fired. And I also took it as Sarah Fuller's an incredible athlete. And during the uh, pregame, uh Kristen and I were watching it, and Kristen was super impressed that she was playing football. Kristen um, even asked me, she's like, so do kickers have to do anything other than kick? I was like, well, I was like, if the field goal gets blocked, she might have to make a tackle. Hmm. Um, And I was like, and on kickoffs, if she does any kickoffs, she might have to make a tackle. And that was a little eye-opening to Kristen. But what I was actually really impressed with during the uh, kind of the pregame when they were highlighting her her accuracy was really good i was seeing her warm-ups she was drilling her warm-ups mm-hmm. um she was she, and, she 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 was connecting out to like 38 yeah. 40 yards the the one thing that i did notice was quite frankly she kicked like a soccer player well she uh, is one so i'm not yeah, surprised and, yeah and there's just you know there's subtle differences but there's enough differences that there's a reason why uh, you don't see a kicker head off to the World Cup and you don't really see any World Cup kickers or World Cup players head on over to kick footballs. Um, so the it was impressive that she was as accurate as she was. I think 
I really think if she dedicated herself to this, and I mean, I don't know why she would since she's on a national championship winning soccer team. Uh, but I think if she did dedicate herself to it, she could be a pretty good kicker. And I think, you know, she's the first now from the Power Five Conference. She's the third overall, I believe, in mm-hmm. Division One. Correct. Um, there's been a couple more, I think, at Division Two and smaller levels. Mm-hmm. FCS, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I really think it's a matter of time. At some point, there is going to be a football-obsessed young woman who dedicates herself to it and treats it just the way any other football player would. And they will be just as good because, I mean, let's be honest. I've seen plenty of Mac kickers. I've seen plenty of FCS (laughs) kickers be dreadful. If you are an accurate kicker and you can hit it reliably from 35, you're already better than, I would say, most Division II kickers. Oh, for sure. If you can reliably hit it from 38, you're probably better than most FCS kickers. Mm -hmm. So I really think it's a matter of time. It was awesome for Sarah Fuller. Congratulations to her for being the only one not to embarrass themselves the other day. Uh, But I agree with you guys. I think the university basically were like, huh, we don't have any kickers. What do you want to do, Derek? And he's like, hey, this is a good opportunity to make a statement. Oh, by the way, I'm also one foot out the door. I know I'm going to get fired, so might as well make a statement in my last game. I I don't even know if it's that so much as they brought so much attention to themselves on the game by promoting this so much and then – didn't just fall flat on their face, but fell flat on their face, rolled over four times, and yeah. ended up like just sprawled out like they had a yard sale while they were skiing. It was so bad. Yeah. Um, I loved her helmet decal. That was oh, play like a girl. Awesome. That was amazing. Yeah, but that was you wonderful. Play ball like a girl. <laughs> yeah, she does. A girl who's an SEC champion soccer player. Yeah. yeah, they could. And, they could also could have used her as linebacker. Linebacker. I watched some of her <laughs> clips as a goalie because she's the goalie for the Vanderbilt women's soccer yep. team. Yeah, she is not afraid to go out there and grab a ball in the air and run over some girls while she's doing it too. <laughs> so they could have used her on defense. I think honestly, they could use her at defense. They could use her at quarterback. They could have used her at wide receiver. I mean, they could have used her anywhere because yeah. Well, I mean, here here's the here's the thing. When you look at like, yes, there's a different biology and muscular structure and physiology, like that. but but a extremely gifted athlete can find a place. I think if a woman dedicated herself to a position, they could become really good at football. The only position I think would be hard is just the how big offensive and defensive linemen have gotten. I, I think that's a stretch uh, for that to ever be something that a woman could really do reasonably. But kickers, punters, certain skill positions, I, I mean, a really good wide receiver, slot receiver, I mean, why not? Running back, why not? Um. I don't know if you guys... Do you guys remember the former... I think he played for Ohio State in the New York Jets. Nick Mangold, the center. Do you remember him? Yeah, he was on Hard Knocks. His sister was a power lifter, and she played played offensive line as a high schooler. And after Nick graduated, she was the best offensive lineman on her high school team. Wow. Nice. She was... A mauler. I mean, this girl was benching three thirty. She was squatting in the upper five hundreds. Like, well, then I stand. I stand corrected. Then I think. I think. I. I think if there was a position outside of, I think if there's, if there's a position outside of kicking and punting, I actually think it would be someone like Ms. Mangold, whose first name is escaping me right now. I think it's offensive line because I, I have. I have a legitimate question then for you guys. Segue yeah. into it. Just thinking about this in the bigger picture. So, um, you know, women's basketball, awesome. 
great. Le- Love it. Shout out to Lisa mm-hmm. Bluter. Yeah. Love watching her, that Iowa team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A shout, shout out to Elena yeah. Deladon for just being Elena Deladon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Women's hockey has been really exciting. The U.S. women's team is amazing in the Olympics. Uh, the Wisconsin this Wisconsin female Badgers team yep. is amazing. Um, how come the only women like football league is either like a flag football or that absolutely ridiculous like lingerie football, whatever it's called? <laughs> like. Why there, isn't there? There, I think that there is women's professional football. It's just it gets into a larger sociological question, Joss. I don't think we have time to answer this evening, uh, based on gender roles and sports, and the fact that at least for something like basketball and hockey, there are high there are high school programs for that. If you go to a public yeah. high school where they have you know where they have they're going to have women's basketball where i'm from they're going to have women's hockey right we had men's hockey yeah. and women's hockey in, or boys hockey and girls hockey in high school if you're from you know they're going to have men's and women's soccer they're going to have men's and women's volleyball women's volleyball even more so than men's volleyball they're going to have men's and women's track there is no underlying structure for women's football and uh, it's my be- it's my understanding and my belief that it's because it is a true contact sport, and that there is still this almost Victorian ideal that a, a, a lady shouldn't be involved in a game like that, despite the fact that you know, as you guys know, I played rugby for a long time. There's Most, female ruggers. There, yeah. There's totally you know, women's rugby in a lot of places just as popular as men's rugby. Also every, if you've ever, every rugby if you've club ever, I've ever played for has also had a women's team. Like if you've ever seen uh field hockey, there's a sport that also gets absolutely ridiculous. Oh my gosh. Like I field hockey is wonderful. One of my best yeah. friends Hand lacrosse. The, one of one of my best friends in the whole world, uh, Jesse Cullen played field hockey for Holy Cross. And she is, I don't think she, she, I don't think she is, you know, she's five one on a tall day and she would go through (laughs) and absolutely wreck some girls in a plaid skirt. Like it was fantastic. Maybe, maybe the shift could start small because there might not be as much interest. I'm thinking like, why couldn't eight person football be played? That's played in tons of high schools in rural america sometimes mm-hmm. there's even six person football yeah like why not that i would that'd be awesome but that would be i don't i just i you know I, I don't know if there is the interest and there's there's just not the infrastructure for it quite frankly um and whether or not there should be is a different question for a different day this is that, where my this is where my americanness seeps in but if I was like watching the Summer Olympics and I had a choice between field hockey versus six-person football, <laughs> I would be like, "Oh, hell yeah! Give me, give me the six-woman football versus the field hockey game." Have you ever watched men's field hockey where it's like huge in like India? Uh, no. The uh, every four years, I do my tradition of giving. All the Olympic sports, about 30 seconds of my attention. And uh, typically, field hockey, I watch about a minute of. And then mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. all right. In the last Summer Olympics, which now seemed like forever ago because 2020 didn't happen, at Rio was the, the first time they ever had rugby in the Olympics. They had rugby sevens. And Samoa actually ended up winning their first medals ever in Olympic competition. And they won the gold in rugby. And it was Rugby Sevens. And Rugby Sevens is an absolutely crazy, completely different game than our traditional Rugby Union, which is what most of us are used to who play rugby, watch rugby, etc. I remember that. Do you remember their team slogan? Samoa? Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was, we want Samoa. We want Samoa. <laughs> <laughs> well... First of all, A, good on you for that. 
and B, Voice. I think I watched every I watched every single minute of it. It was so it's so enthralling. It's so much fun. So the next time, if we ever have the Olympics again, if we're ever allowed to do anything internationally again, I think I watched about thirty seconds of that too. Oh, uh, it was it so the, good. When it comes to the Summer Olympics, I'm t- typically glued to all the track and field. Well, yeah, I'm I'm always glued to track and field. That is, track and field and gymnastics are the two things that I don't miss a single moment of. And uh, I don't think Coach watches any Olympics. Usually, when they come around, he pops in VHS tapes of uh, the Ray Goof era. Oh, I was gonna say he puts in some uh, some old. Hustle Walker tapes. No, I just watch my own highlights. <laughs> How's that sound? Well, uh, we need to move on in our recaps here. And speaking of eight-man football, Iowa, Nebraska, a mm. lot of a lot of places in both those states they play eight-man football. Josh, Iowa struggled a little bit more than I anticipated with this absolutely hapless Nebraska team. Yeah, uh, it was not a well-coached game to say the <laughs> least. Surprise, surprise. Um, they ended with 45 rushes to 30 passes, but for a long stretch of that second quarter, it was all passes. Um, at halftime, the quarterback was on pace for 40 pass attempts and obviously didn't get there. So they calmed down in the second half. To be fair, um, Josh, they ran for 2.9 yards per carry in the game. Well, the problem is they kept quitting on running the ball. And they also ran it in some really obvious, dumb moments. Like, oh, we just had an incomplete pass. It's second and 10. We probably don't want a third and 10. Let's run the ball. And Nebraska was like, huh, I bet Iowa's going to run the ball right here. They had so many second and 10 rush attempts. It was so stupid. Um, if there was a way for me to see the half by half stats, I would wager that to get to that two and a half yard per carry average, I would wager that in the first half they averaged half a yard, and in the second half they averaged whatever it needed to be five yards per carry. Because they ran the ball so much better in the second half. Um, So it just wasn't a very well-coached game by Iowa. Um, They obviously uh, had some turnovers. Again, they had an interception by Petrus. Um, Thankfully, Nebraska gave two of them back, especially at the end of the game, to win it. Um, What helped is um, Scott Frost decided to out Brian Ferentz, Brian Ferentz, <laughs> and uh, played two quarterbacks, um, one of which was really good, and uh, the other stunk it up <laughs> routinely. Uh, and believe it or not, <laughs> the quarterback that stunk it up routinely switched at halftime. Uh, Alec, or, uh, Alec, Adrian Martinez was awful in the first half, but then really good in the second half. And uh, McCaffrey was really good in the first half and terrible in the second half. So that was fun. They kept doing that rotation. Um, You know what's bad when you're blaming clapping for why your center, who's had center quarterback exchange issues all year? Uh, First of all, I'm not sure why he got the starting job yet again. He was pulled a week ago and then got the starting job again. Um, But after either his fourth or fifth awful snap of the game, they finally yanked him. And afterwards, um, Scott Frost blamed the clapping on the Iowa sideline, which if it happened, okay, fine. Bigger question, why did you start someone who snaps it over your quarterback's head multiple times? Didn't make any sense. Uh, Nebraska... I think this is their last gasp in a rivalry game. I think they got up a little bit for this one. Then they lost it. I I think they'll come out flat and disinterested at Purdue. Uh, I think they'll come out flat and disinterested against Minnesota. Uh, I think they end up 1-6 if both those games get played. And then they are in for a mighty big decision with Scott Frost because alum or not, this is not what they are paying him to do. 
No. That's bad. Um, yeah, I, w- I was surprised by this game um, because it, it, I mean, it just shouldn't. The other problem, sorry to cut you off, Coach. The other problem. Yeah, that's all good. Yeah. Uh, the other reason why we are held to 26 points are inside the 30 play calling was just an abomination. Um, we had so many field goals from inside uh, the 30-yard line. Here was here was Iowa's field goals. A 32-yarder. A, drumroll please, 33-yarder. <laughs> a, drumroll please. This was his long of the day. 48. They Oof. missed a 51-yard field goal that um, would would have put Iowa up big. Um but yeah, you flip those first two field goals into fourteen points. This thing's a laugher. Yeah, I, I'm gonna sum up with a, with a tweet I sent you guys from uh, Craig Kronzer. A collection of Nebraska pet peeves: playing football against tough teams. Yeah. N- not playing football against tough teams. Yeah. Football players clapping. Yeah. Tackling Melvin Gordon. Yes. Tackling Jonathan Taylor. <laughs> That's good stuff. And I will leave it at that. Elsewhere in the can, big can I can I rewind just one thing again on Scott Frost? And please. With each year, it's playing out more and more that he was not the reason UCF had their turnaround. Um we I've said it before. They went undefeated like two years before he got that job. George O'Leary wanted to retire. The school said, no, you're not. You're coming back for another year. And he goes, okay, I'm not going to do a goddamn thing this entire season. And then they let him retire. They bring in Scott Frost. But it's like, there were a bunch of already really good players on the UCF team. Then I think they had a fairly good offensive coordinator that had a fairly good offense for a fairly good quarterback. Yeah, I think he was kind of a one-hit wonder. Ooh, strong words. Yeah. Uh, By the way, I want to throw something at you guys. I want to do a little blind resume for you. Oh, I love it. Since we're talking about about questionable coaches, neither Uh of these resumes are Scott Frost. We're moving on to a different situation, different school, different situation. But I want to bring this up to you earlier. Coach A has. A .448 win percentage, so 44.9 winning percentage, however you want to do that. Both that's, that's overall. So in conference. Loses in conference, more games than they win. In conference, he's batting a 406. Even worse, winning 40.6% of his games in conference. Two bowl games. 1-1. One, one. All right, that's okay. blind resume A. Blind resume B. A four four one overall win percentage. So we got four four eight versus four four one. Okay. In conference, a four three seven. Okay. So a little bit better in conference, a little worse overall. This coach also has two bowl games, has one one. Last little bit of information. Second coach, his bowl win came in his first season. Other coach, bowl win came in their third season. So one started hot, the other kind of built up. Which resume are you going with? They're both bad, but I think probably the first one. Okay, coach. Mm. I mean, they're both below 500. They're both below 500 at conference. I think that... that, Can you give me the conferences that they're from? They're from the same conference. A power five? Yes. That's tough. Yeah. Is one of them... Hmm... 
Is one of them my man Justin Wilcox? No. Okay. No. Okay. Um, I know it's not Dino Babers. It's not Dino Babers. Is one of them... Is one of them Will Muschamp? No, neither of them are Will Muschamp. Well, I know I know they're not uh, Derek Mason because Derek Mason never won a bowl <laughs> game. No. Jeremy Pruitt. No. Who are they, Josh? Coach one, blind resume one, little bit better in conference, or a little bit better overall, a little bit worse in conference, won a bowl game in their third year. That coach, the former Purdue Boilermaker coach Danny Hope, blind resume number two, the current Purdue coach, Jeff Brom. Wow. <laughs> Ooh, Wow. <laughs> Uh, Danny Hope was fired after his fourth season. Things are not looking good for you there, Coach Brom. <laughs> Jeff Brom midway through his fourth season. All right. I want to. Uh, I, I just want to talk about the state of Michigan uh, really quickly before. Well, it's got an upper peninsula, and the bottom part looks like a mitten, and that's about it. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. We can move on from there. No. Uh, Sparty beat Northwestern this weekend. Oh. That was strange. Uh, yes, that is correct. The Michigan State University, who has lost, who lost to Rutgers, uh, just beat Northwestern, who beat Wisconsin in, in the twenty-nine to twenty, and you know it's not because of Rocky Lombardi. I'll tell you that much. But. Mel, Tuck, Mel, Mel Tucker's doing something. Don't be surprised if Mel this, Tucker... This know, one's really simple. Turnovers. Michigan State, Michigan State ran the ball great. Northwestern could not run worth a lick. The yeah. turnovers, yeah. four, four to one. turnovers, four one. To one. Yeah. yeah. Four, four turnovers for Northwestern, one turnover for Michigan State. Michigan State had almost 200 rushing yards. Northwestern had 63 rushing, rushing yards on 37 attempts. That's not good. Elsewhere, Penn so State. With, Penn, with Penn, the Minnesota game canceled, by the way, Northwestern needed to lose two. Yep. Um, or lose out. You know, depending on how the tiebreaker. Yeah, they works. just all they have left is Illinois. So yeah. Um, well, oof. <laughs> because their game, their game with Minnesota has been canceled. And we won't we won't make much money on the bet, but if it's Northwestern Ohio State, we could we can bet about ten grand to make seven bucks, but it'll be uh, worth it. Well, right now it's looking like it might be Northwestern versus Indiana because Ohio State might not play enough games to qualify. Yeah, it's an absolute shame about Penix Jr. It really is. It really is. We'll talk about Indiana versus Wisconsin on our next show. Yeah. Quickly though, Penn State. Michigan played uh, two programs that are in, that were in bad places. Somehow Penn State pulled off the victory in the Big House 27-17. And Josh, are both of these coaches going to be gone by the end of the season? Um yes, uh if with an asterisk. Um if they want to be. Um Harbaugh's more likely to um, get fired, but he only has one year left on his deal. I think they can work out a buyout, work out some kind of arrangement. Obviously, he wants to go to the NFL. They're not going to embarrass him like that. And for Franklin, uh, yes, he's leaving only if he wants to take another job. I mean, he, you know, he's still a hot commodity. He's won the Big Ten. They're coming off. Uh, what what did they win last year? I think 10-11 games, something like that. Um, he's getting a COVID pass. The only reason he might leave is if he knows stuff about some of the ongoing uh, hazing scandal potential. Who knows? There's some smoke there. Maybe not necessarily in a fire. But if he knows that it's bad, he might peace out. Um, so there's, yes, the possibility that both are gone, but very different circumstances to them. Uh, what's interesting about this game is it's the same thing over and over and over for Michigan. Don Brown's defense is busted. The 
script is out on how to beat this team. And it's just the same thing every week, and Don Brown doesn't change anything. Let's give Harbaugh, I guess, some naivete, like, applause for being faithful to his assistants. But this guy needed to be gone two years ago. He needed to be gone, like, you. if you say this is the last chance, Don, you fire him three weeks ago. If he wants to bring Don Brown back, Michigan has to call his bluff and fire him. They need to fire Harbaugh if he's not willing to make the change. The Don Brown defense is terrible. The other thing that's absolutely ridiculous, the same thing happened a few years ago when Michigan lost to Iowa. The quarterback took a big hit. His shoulder wasn't the same. His balls were coming out as wounded ducks. And he kept him in the game. And they lost to Iowa in Kinnick Stadium in an awesome upset by my Hawkeyes. Well, the same thing happened against Penn State just now. Cade McNamara took a big hit. His shoulder was, quote, feeling some stiffness, but he tried to grit through it. Uh, Jimmy, your co- your quarterback went 12 of 25 for 91 yards. I think you can find a better option. It's called play whoever has the healthy so- shoulder at quarterback. Why are you doing that? It's absolutely asinine. Yes, you could. I could have said it better myself, honestly. <laughs> wow. Well done. All right. Well, quickly, uh, there's three games I want to go over very fast before we wrapped up. Pac-12 looks like they are going to be out of the playoff. Oregon lost <laughs> to Oregon State in the Civil Yuck. War. Iowa State beat Texas in the Big 12, uh, not not the beginning of the end, probably the end of the end for Tom Herman. And over in the ACC, Notre Dame beat UNC. Josh, any of those three games really stand out to you? Well, I'll talk about the Iowa State one, obviously. Um, First of all, I'm a little confused about how the win gave Iowa State a 99% chance of making the Big 12 title game. I really want to see the computer printout to see what... All dominoes need to fall. It involves Kansas winning out. <laughs> well, that ain't happening. Um, yeah, this was awesome. This was awesome for Iowa State. Um, you know, if I'm sure they wanted to blow out Texas and make a statement and go clinch this or nearly clinch with this impressive victory, but um, nothing comes easy to Iowa State. They struggled for long stretches of this game but their defense just knuckled down held texas to just seven points in the second half um made texas uh the classic bend but not break defense really made texas work for every yard they got in the second half and the cyclone offense finally got going there and it it took a while, but Brock Purdy ended with 312 yards and a touchdown. Um, my man, Brees Hall, really struggled to get going, but ultimately ended with a game-winning touchdown and had 91 yards. Um, this program has turned around thanks to defense, and I think it was fitting that Coach Campbell and his defense got it done late in the game got it done the second half i'm sure they don't love giving up over 400 yards of offense but they kept texas off the board in the fourth quarter gave their offense a chance to win the game it was awesome will they beat oklahoma for a second time i don't know that remains to be seen but making it to the big 12 title game beating texas and oklahoma for the first time ever in the same season big milestone uh, Campbell has a hell of a paycheck from Iowa State. I really, really, really hope he stays there, and I really, really hope he goes about 0-20 in the rest of his matchups against Iowa, but he can win the rest of them as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Uh, Coach, uh, your thoughts on any of those three games? I mean, I, I think Iowa State-Texas uh, game was – uh, it was a head scratcher if you're a Longhorn fan. I mean, you, you've got to you've got to start to realize that uh, the end is near with Tom Herman. I mean, just absolute unacceptable 
um, to lose that game. You, you were in control the whole way, and then all of a sudden you just fall apart and you choke. And, and you know, that's not to take anything away from Iowa State because I think the Cyclones played a phenomenal game and, and did a phenomenal job of uh, making sure they were get themselves back in that ball game. But, I mean, you I don't know, man. you you, you got to finish that off. But uh, for Iowa State, I, you know, I, I'm rooting for them, man. I hope they can pull it off and beat Oklahoma for the second time. But, you know, that will be an interesting Big 12 championship. And with, with uh, Ohio State's season in jeopardy as far as being able to qualify for the, for the college football playoff, this might be an important uh, important matchup in the Big 12, and they might get a little bit of reprieve in the college football playoff. No, did, I mean, did you I don't, guys? I don't think there's any way a Big 12 team is making is making the playoff because they, they don't have anyone with less than two, they're not gonna have anyone with less than two losses. Yeah, sure. I, I think it's more likely that if Notre Dame, uh, Clemson rematch is close, they both make it. Or if something like Alabama Florida is close. Yeah, the most Florida thing ever would be to totally face plan that game. Yeah, you're right. It would be. Uh, I'll, I'll say, you know, it's just talked about Bo Nix being a little Jekyll and Hyde and um, just sort of feels like maybe something similar for, for Sam Allinger, you know, the highs that he's had, but also just some of the lows and, and just some of the mistakes that he's made and, and – just not getting Texas over the hump, but I, I think the last, his last play in a home game, is really fitting of that. I mean, it, it's it's third and ten at the thirty-six. You're in pretty good field goal territory for Cameron Dicker, the kicker. Dicker, the takes kicker. a sack, takes a sack, loses enough yards to make it a fifty-eight yard attempt to tie the game, and it's like, just how how does that happen? That it's like junior high <laughs> rule of if we're in field goal territory late in the game, you cannot take a sack. No. You find you find a way to get that ball out of bounds and avoid avoid the um, intentional grounding and just Dick. it's like little mistakes like that just it feels like what Tom Herman's kind of coaching tenure has been at Texas. It's there's a lot of pizzazz there. There's a lot of jazz there, but where's the substance and and the little mistakes add up and you know indicative of this game. I mean, I'm I'm right there with you. I think it's something that you know it, it's got to be looked at by the administration at the University of Texas. I mean, th- there's got to be somebody out there that can actually take back over the Big Twelve. Um, in, and there's got to be somebody out there that can blow the lid off this program because Texas has way too many resources to be that bad, and and you can't you, you can't do that. You can't play that way. You can't you can't year in and year out constantly uh, be in the middle of the pack of a very very weak conference. So, I mean, to me, it's their message simple. boards are going all over uh, wanting Urban Meyer. Yeah. I mean, I don't blame him. All right. Well, on that note, I think it's time for us to end. So, whoa, 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 whoa. There's one thing we can't let this go under the cover. We cannot, this is legitimately burying the lead. How about Jarrett Patterson? 36 carries, 409 yards, eight touchdowns as the 4 0. Buffalo Bulls just absolutely obliterated Kent State seventy to forty one. I mean, that's not. A I bad thought they should have left him in there for a ninth score. <laughs> well, sometimes you want to tie a uh, record-setting day. That wasn't the only absurd blowout on the day. Um, I don't think that was even the only seventy spot on the day because. Drumroll, please. Owen eight Louisiana Monroe lost to their in-state rivals, evidently, uh, seventy to twenty. Well, a game that we all picked correctly. Yeah. Um, the uh, <laughs> the raging Cajun stat light is hilarious for running the ball. Forty-two carries as a team, three hundred forty-four yards as a team. 
Jesus. Good Lord. Good Lord is right. Now we, now we can call it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for <laughs> us here on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. So, on behalf of our own offensive coordinator, the coach, Corey Burton, and our interpret blogger from Big Ten Counting, Josh Cook, this is the professor, Matt Perkins, saying so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Coastal Carolina. Coastal. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.